Do you ever get a flash of a memory of a movie you saw as a child but can't remember the name? Perhaps you caught it on TV while staying up later than you should have. Or maybe you never saw it, but you recognize the cover art from the neighborhood video store around the block. At the Video Junkyard Podcast, we dig up these forgotten films and franchises and see if they still hold up in the digital age. You know, one person's trash is another's treasure, something like that. Each episode, hosts Eric Gilbranson and Joe Peterson discuss a number of films selected thematically. We'll be looking at the best, the worst, and the best of the worst at the Video Junkyard Podcast. You are listening to the Doctor Who Target Book Club Podcast. Happy listening. Hello, I'm Larry Van Mersbergen, the host of the Doctor Who Collectors Podcast. Now that you're reading the Doctor Who Target books in story order and enjoying the thorough discussion of them, maybe you'd like to collect them or even collect the hardcover editions, or maybe the Pinnacle American editions. For all things in the world of Doctor Who merchandise, from books to the Dalek weather vanes and Dalek cufflinks to the really unusual, tune in to the Doctor Who Collectors Podcast, available on Apple Podcasts and Podbean. You are listening to the Doctor Who Target Book Club Podcast. Enjoy your travels! Hi, this is Louise Jameson and I play Leela on Doctor Who, well, back when God was a boy. You're listening to the Doctor Who Target Book Club podcast. Enjoy your travels. Last time on the Doctor Who Target Book Club podcast. All the cells of his body have been devastated by the Metabilis crystals, but you forget, he is a Time Lord. I will give the process a little push and the cells will regenerate. He will become a new man. When will all this happen? Well, there's no time like the present, is there? Goodbye. Look after him. Now, wait a moment. Look, Brigadier, look. I think it's starting. Fellow time travelers, and welcome back to the Doctor Who Target Book Club, the podcast in which we undertake the gigantic task of discussing in story order all the Doctor Who novelizations. Yeah, gigantic, it really is the word for it. My name is Tony Whip, and today we have a equally gigantic four-person discussion panel, including our so-called expert who's been a Who fan since 1979. That would be me. There's also our intermediate-level casual fan who's seen several episodes, was not previously read any of the books until these podcasts, and this time it's really Dalton Hughes. Hello, Dalton. Hello, hello. We also have our semi-casual fan, one who's seen little to none of the original series and has not previously read any of the books except for the ones we've done for this podcast, and this time around it's the wise and witty Alison Fitch-Seyfried. Hello, Alison. Hello from the new Tornado Alley. 
Oh, God, yeah, don't even bring that up. Uh, for people who don't know, I live in Rogers Park, and that's exactly where the tornado touched down last week. But luckily, we didn't lose power or anything, and a tree didn't come through the window, so we're happy. I think Trey didn't come through the window. That would have been, he would have been a welcome visitor. We'd rather have Trey than a tornado or a tree through the window any day. Well, speaking of which, we also have a fan who knows more about the show than I ever will, and that's the tantalizing and tree-like Trey Corte. Hello, Trey. <laughs> hey. I just saw this image now of, like, this new version of Wizard of Oz where I get carted off <laughs> to Rogers Park, you know? <laughs> now, are you riding the bicycle? I, I probably, I mean, I'm sure there are some pretty wicked queens in Rogers Park. So, you know, there's. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, if you like what you're hearing, all this talk of witchy queens and Rogers Park and whatever, please check out our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash DWTargetBC. Depending on the amount you give per month, you will receive, among other possible goodies, a randomly chosen BBC book, not a Target book. Since we know you have so many of them, you now store them in a bunker with your nuclear codes. Just to say thank you for being willing to help us stay on the virtual air. And as usual, we'd like to thank our regular patrons, Bart Lammy, Rick Taylor, Toby Bengelsdorf, Jay Barry, The Video Junkyard Podcast, The Doctor Who Collectors Podcast, Hans Wax, Stephen Pickering, James Sumnall, and Dave Davis. Thank you very much. Thanks, y'all. Thank you. That is good. Thanks. Now, may I be excused to go write my spec script of witchy queens of rogers park because <laughs> that, that's where the brain is now i've got a lot of material I'm to start sure. with brunhilde winters the winters i see what you did there in fact everybody did we also have our goodreads discussion group where you the listener can discuss upcoming books and previous podcasts you can find us there at tinyurl.com forward slash y7k m-a-s-p-r in fact we expect you to we now begin our 12th season of the podcast and the Tom Baker era with Terrence Dick's novelization of Robot. Without further ado, here are some fast facts. Doctor Who and the Giant Robot, adapted by Terrence Dix from a script that aired from 12 1274 to 1 1875, published by Target Books in March 1975. As of this recording in August of 2020, this title is currently out of print, but is available as an unabridged audiobook, 124 pages. Now, this story is a number of lasts instead of a number of firsts, but we'll get there as well. This is, of course, Barry Letts and Terrence Dick's last story working together as producer and script editor on Doctor Who, respectively. They worked together to co-create and produce the 1973 show Moonbase 3, which lasted only one season and which never really took off. <laughs> you see what I did there. <laughs> oh, hush you. <laughs> Letts would continue to produce programs, however, including a stint as executive producer for Tom Baker's last season and John Nathan Turner's first season in 1980, a season that he appears only to have half-remembered, since he uses several concepts from that season in his two 1990s radio plays, but he used them incorrectly. Let's also produce 25 Sunday classic serials, including Pride and Prejudice and things like that, and worked with Dick's script editor again on these, casting many of the people he'd worked with on Doctor Who, including Tom Baker and Liz Slayton. His final directing work was on EastEnders around 1992. 
He published his autobiography, Who and Me, in 2009, the same year that, after a long battle with cancer, he died. The new series episode, The Waters of Mars, was dedicated to his memory. Now, we've already done a tribute to Terrence Dix, who died in 2019. Listeners, you'll find that in episode 59, where we discuss Day of the Daleks with Larry von Mersbergen. I'll allow you to find that one on your own. We'll reintroduce Ian Martyr next time, but this time we have an even bigger introduction to do. As I said, it's a story of firsts. It's the first story shot entirely on video. Even the location work. There's no film done in the story. It's the first story to mix CSO, or Color Separation Overlay, otherwise known as Blue Screen, from video sources with other videos, since they learned from the mistakes they made with Invasion of the Dinosaurs, and it's the first of many stories to feature the fourth Doctor, Tom Baker. Born in Liverpool in 1934, Baker was the youngest actor at that time to play the Doctor at the age of 40, because Troughton had been 46 when he took over, and Baker's age record was then beaten by Peter Davison, who was 28, and in the new series by Matt Smith, who I believe, and Trey, you'll correct me if I'm wrong, 23? I, I don't know. I thought he was 17 or something. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's how he looked anyway, but all right. Tom Baker was from a working class family and at a young age was very religious, even going so far as to enter a monastery at the age of 15. He jokingly said later that his experience there made him temporarily gay, at least for one of his classmates, because Tom Baker makes jokes like that. And the other thing, it was very hard, you see, because, you know, we were very young men. I was only 15, and, well, by the time I was a novice, I was only 15 and a half. And so naturally, I was in a state of sexual excitement at that time. I still am, when I come to think of it. Because <laughs> <laughs> all crowded together. <laughs> it's, uh, but you know, so actually, so I was there for six years, and so naturally, it was terrible to have a hard on for six years. It was very hard, to, you know, bear, very hard. And so, you know, but then everybody had a stalk on. That's why they all walked with stoops. <laughs> He eventually left and had stints in both the British Army for his national service and in the Merchant Navy before starting his career in his 30s working at the Royal National Theatre with Sir Laurence Olivier. His first major screen role when he was 37 was as Rasputin in 1971's Nicholas and Alexandra alongside Michael Jason, about whom more much later. He also appeared in, and I've never been able to say this man's name correctly, Pier Paolo Pasolini in his 1972 version of Geoffrey Chaucer's The Canterbury Tales, and for those interested, he has a nude scene in that. Yeah. Ooh la la. Yeah, I know, uh. right? <laughs> <laughs> Both of those are expressions of interest, in a way. Yes, and my reaction is somewhere in between, because I have watched the movie, but of course not just to see that. In 1974, he appeared as the villain in The Golden Voyage of Sinbad, and it was that performance that made Letts and Dix decide he was their doctor. At the time he was cast, though, he was working on a construction site, as he often did between acting jobs, and he would later say of Barry Letts that Letts was the man who changed his life forever. And more about the rest of Baker's life when we get to his last story, which at this rate will be right around July 2022. So yeah, something to look mm. forward to. I'm just going to be in a reverie now about what will the world even be in July of 2022. You know, hopefully we'll still be here and talking well, about Well, we still have things. the internet and electricity. Oh, hush now. The story also features Edward Burnham from The Invasion 
as Kevin and Michael Kilgariff, who played the Cyber Controller in Tomb of the Cybermen, and he was the poor soul stuck in the robot costume. <laughs> because that actually was a costume, and it was both painful and dangerous, especially when he would faint from the heat of the lights and the whole thing would topple over. Oh. Imagine the casting call for that. Painful and dangerous. You will feel the heat of the lights yeah. when you topple over. And he was around seven feet tall, I believe. So, yeah. This book and The Brain of Morbius were both adapted by Terrence Dix for an even younger audience in the Junior Doctor Who series, which we made fun of last time. Unfortunately, we couldn't get a copy of Junior Doctor Who and the Giant Robot in time, nor do we have the time right now to read it. So we will do those two books eventually as special episodes for our Patreons sometime. If you want to hear them, you know how to find our Patreon site. So there. It's worth bearing in mind that this book was published in March of 1975, which was only two months after the last episode of the serial aired, but before the book of Planet of the Spiders, which aired in June of the previous year. It's the 10th Target book total, and it is Dick's... Dick's... That's hard to say. It is Dick's fourth book. It's also striking that even though Dix will end up writing most of the Tom Baker stories... Of the 43 or so Fourth Doctor stories novelized, he writes all but 13 of them. This one seems to get certain things about the character. If not wrong, then at least not so right, because it's written so early on. So one of the things I do want to talk about is something that has implications for the entire range. Is it better to have an earlier novelization with more fleshing out of characters, but the greater possibility of continuity problems? because later stories might contradict something in it? Or is it better to have a book that's done years later that can incorporate those references and use them to amplify the story being told? So that's something for us to consider mm -hmm. at some point. Anyway, we need a dramatic reading of the back cover, and Trey has been chomping at the bit to do this one for obvious reasons. <laughs> I don't actually have the book in front of me right now. Do you not? No. Oh, for heaven's sake. Okay, who else is chomping at the bit to read this very suggestive <laughs> description of the story? Uh, who did the last one? Well, Trey did the last one. Who did the last one before that? I could do it because I think it's been a while since I've done one. Sure. All right, I'll go ahead and do it. Look, Brigadier, it's growing, screamed Sarah. <laughs> Boy, howdy. The Brigadier stared in amazement as the robot began to grow and grow, swelling to the size of a giant. Slowly, the metal colossus casting its enormous shadow upon the surrounding trees and buildings began to stride towards the Brigadier. A giant metal hand reached down to grasp him. Can Doctor Who defeat the evil forces controlling the robot before they execute their plans to blackmail? or destroy the world. And that robotic hand isn't reaching down to grasp the Brigadier at all. It's, in fact, Sarah Jane he picks up. And at that point, he has defeated the evil forces controlling the robot. Yes. yes. <laughs> yeah. That actually is something that I just realized um, about this book. Because, you know, if you look at the artwork for this book, it's very similar to the one for Planet of the Spiders, where it's more comic strip. Yep. And the other two that were done by that same author were Terror, the Autons, and the Green Death. And what all four of them have in common is the 
cover scene in the original artwork is from the last five minutes or so of the televised. You know, the autons, it shows the actual nesting creature, which doesn't happen until the very end. Mm -hmm. um, Green Death, same thing with the big fly maggot. Sarah with the spider on her back and the regeneration. And then the robot actually being the King Kong-sized robot. And the blurbs at the back of them are all kind of very set in the last bit of the story. Huh. And so, and then the, then it stops. But for those four books, they've got a very similar cover style. They were all kind of published around the same time. And they were, it seems like that cover artist decided to illustrate the very end of the story, hmm. which doesn't seem to make sense to me. They're trying to avoid spoilers or whatever. So that's that's an interesting choice on the cover artist part. Yeah. It makes a lot of sense if you weren't paid to read and just read the last two pages. <laughs> True. True. Yeah, that that makes sense. I mean, if you're working from the manuscript and you're only, say, you're only given the last chapter, that makes some sense of that. Actually, I didn't think about that. Maybe the whole thing's not available. Probably not, I would think. But then it's been a long time since I've looked into how they did typesetting at the time. I think they were still doing them on mechanical presses, so maybe the first part of the book was being printed at the time that the last part in the art was being prepared. I really wish we could get David J. Howe on here at some point so he could tell us about these things, because he knows much more about Target books than I ever will. But yeah, that is unusual, and you're right, that None of the other background, uh, well, that's not quite true. I was going to say none of the other back covers are quite as spoilery, but they're all spoilery to some degree, but <laughs> not for the very last episodes generally. So it's kind of odd, really. So first impressions. Allison, what was your first impression of this one? Well, on the cover, I thought the circle inset was with Sarah looked like some kind of Gulliver's Travel scenario. I didn't see the legs sticking out, just sort of the upper body, what it seemed, which seemed to be larger than life and encased in a fort. Maybe the lower body's in a hole in the ground, and then there are tiny people around the fort. I, I kept My brain kept trying <laughs> to create some kind of explanation to this image, as you see it. It did not entirely succeed. So I guess debased Kirby? The, the robot drawing is not bad. The inset, the circle inset is bad. And then there seems to be middle of the doctor's forehead uh, crosshairs. So I was a little confused. Okay, okay. My reprint from 1979 actually has a really lovely cover. So I do not have that one that you're looking at in the PDF and I'm kind of happy about that. Uh, Dalton, what was your first impression? The, the cover was reminding me of Queen's News of the World, <laughs> which, as a child, looking through my parents' vinyl collection, that, that cover horrified me. Because in, in a lot of ways, it's this giant robot that appears to have killed some people, but it has this kind of forlorn, sad look on its face. What is um, it again, Dalton? It's Queen. It's Queen's News of the World. It's the album that has "We Are the Champions" on it, and we will rock you. Ooh, I see what you mean. Yeah. So it was. It was giving me that kind of vibe, and a, and a little bit of King Kong at the same time, where you know he's uh, he's holding Sarah Jane in his in his grasp. Well, even the angle is very similar, even. Yeah, exactly. Shot from below to make it appear even larger, and and very much like like King Kong fighting off the jets. 
I like robots, so I was you know, <laughs> in, interested to see where this went. It clearly was not a Cyberman, so <laughs> and and it did not reflect any of the other previous entries that we have seen that were robotic. So yeah, I, I was kind of excited to see where this went. Um, it didn't seem to be a an alien type of creation, mm-hmm. so it was it was still based here on Earth, which was kind of a carryover from uh, the Pertwee days. Okay. And Trey, when you first saw this book, your first impression? Well, again, I had seen the TV story first. So I do actually have a very vivid memory, and I tend to do this. This is one of the books that I read on the plane for when we were flying to Texas for my grandmother's funeral. So I know that's sad, but um, I had found a bunch of Doctor Who books that at a used bookstore. And you know, like the sort of notary sort of seal? Whoever had donated almost entire collection had this notary seal. So my copy had this little notary seal. I remember enjoying it a lot, and it took me out of the grief that I was experiencing at the time. So it was a good book to read as a distraction during a sad time um, for me. But I was, what, 11? So I, I didn't have the critic's mind at that point. So I just remember enjoying this one, finding it easy to read and finding it to be fun. Those books never really go away for you, do they? Because when my father died, I remember when we were riding down to Virginia for the funeral, I was reading the book Grass by Sherry S. Tepper, which isn't exactly an uplifting science fiction book, but I remember it vividly because of what was going on at the time. This book is not quite as vivid, but let's talk about that. Where do we start? Where should we start with this one? Shall we start with Tom Baker? Because Well, I should, shouldn't say Tom Baker, because it's not the Tom Baker show yet. It's still the fourth Doctor. <laughs> so what do we think of the fourth Doctor in this initial offering? I really enjoyed it. He was kind of brings back some of the humor of the second Doctor mm-hmm. while still feeling serious and feeling like he had uh, something to accomplish. All right. And Allison, Trey? interesting, Trey, that you brought up a melancholy story because I was afraid it'd be a bummer if I did it, but you went first. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) So, no, no, I, seeing someone for a few months about 10 years ago who was older than me and was American, but was living in Scotland when the Tom Baker episodes were still airing. And so I associate Tom Baker with him and I found out a couple of years ago that he passed on. Mm. So I was a little melancholy about this going in because he loved Tom Baker so much and I'm actually intimidated by the Tom Baker era because so many people love it and I know almost nothing about it. I've seen clips, I've never even watched a whole episode because it's, uh, I've seen clips and bits flipping through, but it was always in the middle of the story, so I've never watched a full episode or a full story uh, start to finish. And I... Uh, I thought it was interesting they mentioned James Bond in this book because I strongly associate Tom Baker with Sean Connery in terms of, uh, you know, people feel such strong loyalty to one actor in the role that they don't accept the others. And I know it's a little different with the regeneration story as opposed to just a conventional recast. So I was thinking, okay, now we're going to go into this impenetrable wall of years and text, of years and years and years (laughs) of this character who is so meaningful to so many people, and I don't have that same connection to I just have a an association with you know someone to whom he was important who um died so uh, surprisingly I found this a lot of fun <laughs> a long way right. around a very depressing bush to go I didn't know exactly 
what to expect because from the bit I've seen about Tom Baker, I haven't seen yet the thing that people love so much about him. I, mm -hmm. I don't deny it's there. I just haven't seen enough of him. But I thought it was interesting how quickly I've, you know, we've read so much Terrence Dicks in, in the podcast. I thought it was interesting how quickly he established a voice. And I was curious to find out if it will be the voice of the Tom Baker doctor, or if this is an early version, but it's definitely early on quite distinct from the way Terrence Dix has written other doctors. I don't recall, you said this was the fourth book that Terrence Dix wrote? I don't remember what other doctors he had already written, but he's not doing sort of generic dialogue here. I don't know how much of that is from the script and how much of, of that he uh, was involved with. Yeah, at this point, he had only written the Troughton Doctor. It would seem easiest to conflate him with the Troughton Doctor, but I thought that he was written as very distinct from the Troughton Doctor, which surprised mm -hmm. me. So I assert uh, once again that Tony Witt has created me like in a lab as a person who's read all these <laughs> Doctor Who novels and seen so few of the early episodes. It's alive! It's alive! It's alive! It's alive! Like to be gone. Well, that so, for a, a person okay. like me who may be possibly the only person on earth who is experiencing a Tom Baker story all the way through for the first time through a novel, how good of an introduction is this to the character, do you think? Mm. I'm going to demur on this and let Trey and Dalton take the lead. The thing about Tom Baker on screen and the fourth doctor. And there's some doctors where it's very clear the actor is playing a part. Patrick Troughton would be a really good example of that. Whereas the fourth doctor, Tom Baker brings a lot of Tom Baker to the role. And they've just released a Blu-ray of his third season. So I've been watching through that. And what his co-stars are commenting as they're watching his episodes, you know, and this sort of feature they have. And it's undeniable is the amount of screen presence he has. I mean, he just, he's one of those performers who walks into a room and all eyes are on him. Later on in this on the TV show, he will try to upstage, but he doesn't He doesn't really even have to. He's just one of those really charismatic performers. And as I was reading this, I was thinking how difficult that is to translate onto the page. Mm -hmm. You can certainly get his flippancy, his humor, but all the things that he added as a character, things he does with his voice. And I'm just thinking about where... He says, nothing's impenetrable, Brigadier, as the iceberg said to the Titanic. And in screen, he kind of does this. He goes, he kind of sinks into his chair and goes, he sinks as he's doing. He goes, glug, 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 glug. <laughs> yes. and, and that's all stuff that even if Terrence Dix, who actually, you know, you know, he wrote the scripts for this. So I think there's an energy there in this adaptation. But how do you do that in prose without over explaining it to the point where you lose the magic and charisma of the performance in the first place. I think he accomplished that. Well, I think, I think mm -hmm. there is some sound effect in that scene. So maybe I'll, yeah. it, may, it may have been specifically glug, 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 but I may have misread the onomatopoeia, but I, I think that presence came across, which was, which surprised me because I felt like I never really got Troughton and I'd seen fewer clips of him than any of the doctors, other doctors as well. So I have seen Tom Baker, uh, just a limited amount, and that that did help. But I I did get a sense of that big presence. I think from the reaction of the other characters, the way they were so thrown mm -hmm. off by him, the regular cast. And I'm wondering too if it being written so close to when it was produced and televised, if that had a lot to do with it as well. In what sense? Well, just that it's fresh on his mind, seeing that performance, still remembering what it was like maybe to be on the set or be around that kind of energy. If that 
tied mm. over to the writing. If it was, it was still very fresh on his mind. If he was more excited about it, writing writing about a new regeneration of the Doctor pretty contemporaneously with when the, it was televised. You know, right. Well, something that I find interesting about this book, and it's something that one of our Goodreads reviewers will say too, is that there are certain parts of the book that sound a lot more like Pertwee. Every time, for instance, he says, my dear chap, or something like that, that's more of a Pertweeism. I mean, sure, those words will pass through Tom Baker's lips at least once or twice, but the way he interacts with the Brigadier is very Pertwee-esque on the page as opposed to the way it is on screen, and Trey's absolutely right. There are all sorts of little visual jokes and little bits of business that are missing from the novelization, including... Ah, including the jump rope scene. I feel I ought to warn you, Doctor, that there's grave danger of myocardial infarction, not to speak of pulmonary embolism. Yes, I should, I should. Mother, mother, I feel sick. Send for the doctor. Quick, quick, quick. Mother, dear, shall I die? Yes, my darling, by and by. One, two, three, four. Oh, I really, I really wish that I could show you the jump rope scene because, oh my God. I think like even something like, like oh, my dear fellow, my dear chap, Pertwee, and, and I'm going to really horribly imitate both of them. But Pertwee, when he delivers it, it seems to be in that stereotypically quintessence of Britishness. Like, now look here, my dear chap, you know, that, that it's, you know, very practical, very sort of mannered in, in that sort of thing. Whereas Tom Baker would take the line and almost make it like he's talking to a child. Oh, my dear chap, you know, that, that sort of thing. And so he's, he has a way with his lines of going against what you would expect a scripted actor to do with those lines. Mm-hmm. And he's, he's, he's just very creative. And, you know, you can see why he was, you know, such an iconic doctor, you know, right off the get-go. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Baker has said in multiple interviews that he was always aware of the fact that the doctor was an alien. And so his reactions would always be a little strange. For example, he might smile when he's in danger, or he might frown at something funny. And that sort of thing doesn't come off on the page. And it's kind of odd, because if you read, well, we will be reading lots of Jared Stick's novelizations of Tom Baker's stories, he gets them right in later books. But here, not So to answer the particulars of your question, Allison, from my point of view, I would say it's it's an okay introduction, but you're not getting the full baker. But the things that, Trey, you just talked about, I did pick up on a lot of that. It was communicated maybe not maybe it was not as as strong as it was on the screen but there was definitely some of that on the page like i didn't read any of this as like pertwee at all and i expected it to be sort of generic doctor dialogue as you know you have the challenge either at the beginning of the series like uh, when uh, witchy queens of rogers park premieres <laughs> well that you have first of all a script written usually uncast sometimes a script's written for a particular star but then other other characters are uncast or you have early scripts, you have the cast, but then the actors create the voice together with the writers, and you have that voice develop. So mm-hmm. I expected this to be a Pertwee script because the writers weren't writing for Tom Baker yet. Like they, they were writing for him, but they didn't they hadn't seen what all he could do yet. Well, I mean that's the thing. It 
it is, I would argue, a Pertwee script in terms of storyline. But I still got oh, yeah. that strong sense of presence that you're talking about. I certainly didn't see every visual joke, but I got the, the offbeatness and a different offbeatness cool. than Pertwee offbeatness and a different offbeatness from Troughton. So I, I know Dix hasn't done everything here to capture what you've seen on screen, but everything you're saying sounds familiar. Mm-hmm. And that's okay. that's also with me having just read several Dix adaptations that I thought were much flatter than what he's capable of. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, I... At the risk of contradicting myself, <laughs> which I'm going to do, I, I think I know exactly what you're talking about, Allison, because as I'm looking over my notes, I'm noticing that the quotes that I pull from the book are quite often when the fourth doctor is being the fourth doctor, such as in chapter six when he encounters Miss Winters and she tells him that he can't see the robot. And his response is, oh dear, he said gently, I really do hate being disappointed. I'm quite determined to see that robot. For all the mildness of his manner, there was a steely undertone to his voice. Yeah, that's that's Baker. That's very definitely the fourth doctor. So, yeah, I could see that coming across well, and a In terms bit. of interactions with the Brigadier, I, partly I feel like would have more been annoyed by or dismissive of the Brigadier. It felt like Baker, Dr. Didn't even see the brigadier at all. Just like looked right through him to more towards some more interesting things in the room, and that is a different dynamic yes. that I picked up on. Or actively mocks him, as opposed to gently chiding him or gently ribbing him as a friend. Yes, much more yeah. distant. For example, when the brigadier is talking about the nuclear codes in chapter seven, he says, "Naturally enough, the brigadier went on. The only country that could be trusted with such a role was Great Britain." Naturally, said the doctor solemnly. I mean, the rest were all foreigners. <laughs> <laughs> And on screen, the brigadier actually responds precisely and then realizes what he said. (laughs) It's great because I think that line is a great example of how the fourth doctor simultaneously is both very understated. Because that's one of those lines where like, you know, if you're with people and they kind of rip on you, but it's like the fourth doctor's throwing shade. You know, that would be the modern gay term of it. He's throwing total shade at the brigadier. And he doesn't even realize he's being insulted or gently mocked. And because... You know, it's just done, uh, well, naturally, the rest are all foreigners, you know, and then it's, (laughs) but it's actually a very funny line, the way it's delivered, and both actors do a great job, Nick Courtney being the straight man as the brigadier, Mm -hmm. and it's, there's little moments like that, that work well. Definitely so. And there's something else about the fourth doctor that comes clear in this book very, very strongly. And it comes in chapter 10. It's something we never saw the third doctor do quite so much. The fourth doctor will encourage others to sacrifice themselves, fully knowing what the cost is that's involved, if there's something bigger at stake. And this is one of the first times we've seen the Doctor ever do that. In fact, Trey, again, you'll correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm thinking ahead to Planet of Evil. I'm thinking of Seeds of Doom. I'm thinking of a few other instances where the Doctor essentially pushes somebody to do something that they wouldn't normally do because their individual lives are not as important as what's happening. And that seems to be very much a Fourth Doctor trope that's coming up for the first time in this story. There's definitely a sense his morality works on a different level. And I think 
as you say that, you're not wrong. I, I think this changes because he has three producers, and we'll get into the stylistic differences with each three. But certainly yeah. during his first three years, there is that alienness, not just his behavior, but also his morality. And there's like a story later on where Sarah will say, oh, at times you don't even see. And he goes, human? And yeah. he's anticipating that he's you know, showing a different morality than what she's expected, which I think is interesting because both that and then the trying to encourage others to take the leads is a pattern that happens when they bring the show back in 2005 with Chris Eccleston. Because they have, there's a lot of the tension that exists there is Eccleston's morality is different from Rose's. And a recurring theme is Eccleston's doctor inspires those around to do the right thing, whether it's the tree woman, you know, sacrificing her life in his second episode or others. There's a lot of, you know, he he gets people, he inspires people around, or even Captain Jack and Captain Jack's first episode. And um, that's how you can see that they were trying to make, bring the series back and they went with very a very Tom Baker, fourth doctor approach to the character. Yeah. And that's very telling to me. Yeah. And and two things just to go off that one. We just found out that Christopher Eccleston's coming back for audios. Ah. <laughs> I'm very this excited. Is so exciting. I yes. thought he had sworn off and sworn at all Doctor Who everything forever. Apparently it was at Gallifrey this year, the one of the last times I was in a big public event <laughs> in 2020 in February, but he, they had finally gotten him to agree to do a convention appearance. Apparently, the fan response to him was just so overwhelmingly positive and appreciative, <laughs> and that really warmed him over. Like on the second day, it was his birthday, and he gets on stage, and the fans are all singing "Happy Birthday" to him, <laughs> and and I think he he realized that his issue had been with the BBC. And I think maybe certain directors or showrunners, you know, there there were some personality conflicts. I think it was almost like a Sally Field in his own way, which be. But I think he realized like, oh, I'm I'm loved. They they love me. They really like me. And I I think that made him more open. So I think this agreement's been made. So yay. Yeah. yeah. And that happened too, didn't it? With with Patrick Troughton, who didn't do conventions for the longest time, and then finally was convinced to do them by John Pertwee, of all people, if I remember correctly. And didn't Paul McGann also kind of warm very quickly to fandom after he finally went to a convention? I think there's a lot of that. I mean, I don't want to get too off topic here, but having volunteered at various conventions, I think that's a pretty common story where they're hesitant at first. And then by the end, the one that I'm thinking of is Michelle Gomez, as who is Missy. Her One of her first American conventions was Chicago TARDIS a few years ago. And because I was volunteering in the green room backstage and everything. So I had some nice interactions with her. By the end of the weekend, she was much more relaxed and open and having fun. And, you know, at the beginning, you could tell she was just kind of seeing what it was all about. Very professional, very poised, very friendly, but maybe not quite as comfortable. And then I think the interactions with the fan and the interaction with the other actors from Doctor Who, she she began to understand that there's this community here. And I, I think she was enjoying that. Mm. Yeah, I can imagine that if your impression, not as an atten- a, a convention attendee, but as a, it's a term they use, the talent, as a, what's the term? Right. Yes, that's, that's what, thank you. Uh, as a guest, I can imagine that what you hear from other people who have been guests are not 
you don't hear as much about the vibe of the convention as you hear about stalkers and weirdos and hero worshippers who approach them. And maybe you don't get the positive from those stories. You just get the negative stories because they're more spectacular, even if they're the exceptions. And, and I think the, the good certainly outweighs the bad. Um, one of the things that I think is very fascinating about Doctor Who fandom while we're on this tangent, and I really appreciated doing guest liaison work because I'm usually at Chicago Tars for the last like five years, assigned one of the guests to be kind of like their assistant, help them with the autographs, and which has made me very, very thankful and very excited as a lifelong fan to kind of form these relationships. One of the things that is fascinating is most of the guests never worked with each other on the program, but they have formed this community of friendship and interaction through the convention and fandom scene. So you can have the actress who played Joe Grant as friends with the actress who plays a fifth and sixth doctor companion, Nicola Bryant, who played Perry. And they they just get along so well and they look out for each other. And the special features I was referring to earlier, they're actually one of the special features on the Blu-ray is they get people who weren't on those particular episodes watching their friends, so to speak, or at least their convention colleagues act. And so they're getting a sense of, oh, this is what the other eras were like and this is what was common and and so that's it's it's a i can't think of another show maybe the star trek franchise where the people on the show who never worked with each other because the show went on so long have still formed professional and personal relationships because of the convention circuit and I think there's a whole interesting drama in, in that they, they came together and they, they look out for each other. And it's, it's actually very, very heartwarming for me to see. Yeah, Dark Shadows fandom, the Dark Shadows cast somewhat does that too. Because you may have actors who appeared on the program earlier or later and weren't in a storyline with each other, but they all know each other now. And they're all very good friends, those who are still with us anyway. Uh, yeah, let's get back to talking about the fourth Doctor a little bit. What else strikes you about this Doctor as different from Pertwee, if anything? Or the way Dix is writing him, I should say. He's, from the very first time he appears, shown to be operating mentally on a different wavelength than everyone else around him. And that comes across much more clearly than I expected. His head really is in a different space, no matter what's going on, how pressing or how urgent, how casual it is. He's operating at a different speed, thinking about different things, just sort of, it seems like periodically checking back what's going on in the space around him, dealing with that, then sort of going back to whatever was going on in his own mind. Not that he's spaced out, not at all, just more that, like you said, it's very, he's written as having very clearly his own set of interests and priorities and what he finds interesting and striking or unimportant in a situation will be clearly very different from what the characters we're familiar with find interesting or striking or important or unimportant in a situation. That's definitely true. Some of that may be from the trauma of regeneration because Dix describes that regeneration, which we finally get to see, as the doctor twitching and writhing in agony on the floor and it's like oh thank god they didn't show something like that on screen because that would have traumatized so many kids who were you know still in love with john pertley at that point it would have been just awful well and sometimes i think it can be maybe more challenging to write pertley being off on his own wavelength because sometimes in the novelization it comes across as oh the doctor is bored with this situation and this planet and would like to go to something else and mm -hmm. this 
comes across more effectively. Once again, we're in Terrence Dick's enthusiastic phase. Uh, so I'm sure he was working hard on this. Comes across more effectively. The doctor is not bored or uninterested or disinterested. He's just operating on his own terms, which is, it's a subtle difference, but it's very important. Now, as far as the other new character that we get, we need to talk about Harry Sullivan a little bit because it would be a disservice to Ian Martyr if we didn't. Oh, are we going to see more of him? Oh, yeah. Oh. That's, he's the new companion. You didn't notice he was getting in the TARDIS at the end? Uh, I did not. I apologize. <laughs> <laughs> I thought he was he's going to be one and done. Lured inside yep. by the doctor. Mm-hmm. Yep, we are going to have him for the next, uh, I'm counting on my fingers here, one, two, three, four, five, six stories? And then a seventh. Am I right, Trey? Well, he has five more stories, and then he has seven stories total, but the next five. Well, maybe, yeah. Tony, you could be kind and generous enough to edit out my shame that I did not recall him getting in no, at the end. No, I'm going to keep that <laughs> in. That's lovely. <laughs> well, I like the characterization that uh, he uh, spends a lot of time reading lurid thrillers. <laughs> then, mm-hmm. yes, yes. Yes. <laughs> he has a very amusing concept of what undercover work will look like. <laughs> Yes, he does. Unfortunately, as I said, we lose some of that more playful... Inter- well, we still get the playful interaction between the Doctor and Harry when they first meet each other. Well, when we see them on screen meeting each other, but... There you are. Now, come along, Doctor. You're supposed to be in the sick bay. Am I? Don't you mean the infirmary? No, I do not mean the infirmary. I mean the sick bay. You're not fit yet. Not fit? I'm the Doctor. No, Doctor. I'm the Doctor, and I say that you're not fit. You may be a Doctor. But I'm the doctor. The definite article, you might say. Yeah, there's a lot more of that byplay going on between Tom Baker and Ian Martyr, who apparently got on like a house on fire to the point that they collaborated on a book or a story which later became a book. And yes, we will be reading that book. Yes, we will, because I I can't resist the idea of reading that book for this podcast. <laughs> Even though it never aired, it was never a novelization. We've it just could have been a movie. Read. It so. really could have, with Vincent Price, no less. <laughs> yes. That's um, an idea. And that, well, that's just like looking ahead to the next two books. We get two Ian Martyr novels that Ian Martyr was in. So you get a lot more characterization of Harry Sullivan in the next two books, which is exciting. I don't think there's as much to him in this book. Just kind of like yeah. dashing hero type. I thought it was good comic relief. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, they refer to him as a cross between Biggles and Bulldog Drummond, which are two references that will go sailing happily over most Americans' heads. I don't know if you even want me to get into the background of those two characters, but let's just say that most readers in the mid-70s would have been all too familiar with those two characters since they'd each been around since the 30s. And we're apparently just kind of like adventurers. That's the sort of man Sarah thinks Harry Sullivan is. So that imprints it very quickly what sort of character Harry Sullivan is for the reader. Not so much for us, but Ian Martyr's performance really brings that across. My favorite piece of minor characterization in this is because last book, The Brigadier, we got a flashback to his days as a gay subaltern. Well, now <laughs> Sarah Jane makes the observation that he is a swinger. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Which and has I a very different that. meaning in the 1970s than it does now. <laughs> so, oh. oh. So I, I think, you know, Doris and the Brig are, you know, having a good time. <laughs> 
right. Probably not so much his first wife. Um, that's the one that he had uh, Kate with. Is that yes. right? Yeah, Fiona, yes. and that's in downtime and everything else. So yes, one of the few, and this is something interesting because I don't think we'll ever have a book with her in it. But I just want to point this out: the Brigadier has a daughter. She appeared in a fan work, uh, fan video rather, in the uh, 1990s as a character, and was then included in the new series because we've seen her a couple of times in um, Matt Smith's stories and in the Eleventh Doctor stories. It's one of the few times you've had that sort of cross-pollination of characters, and it's kind of awesome, really. So have we seen the Brigadier for the last time? No, but we're not going to see a lot more of him. In fact, again, counting on my fingers, (sighs) four times? Yep. Yeah, four times. And three of those times, he's brought back as an event. Yes. So it's, you know, it's very much intended that way. Yeah. Though one of those times, even though it's not a fan favorite, I'm actually quite fond of his characterization in that particular story. But we'll get there (laughs) sometime after 2022. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) We'll we'll be seeing him again probably in, uh, let's see, three, four months. I ask because there's a sense in which this is a first or second appearance for him for Terrence Dix writing a novelization. And then I was curious if it was the last or second to last or close to last appearance for him in story order. Uh, Because we talked a lot about how Terrence Dix is more interested in what he's writing chronologically earlier on when he's writing. And I thought he had a really nice opening establishing paragraph about all these things about think tank that flash through the brigadier's mind as it's brought up for the first time. That's presumably not in the script in detail. And that's something that Malcolm Holt did nicely as well is he shows that the brigadier sometimes plays officiously stupid, Mm -hmm. a person who is preoccupied with regulations and manner. And I think that Hulk and Dix can both write him very well as a person who plays that part to his advantage and is actually very insightful about what's going on and uses it it lets people have that perception of him and then other times he's written as actually just a person who's officious for officiousness sake I thought this was one of those better characterizations where that's an image he projects because it's useful to him but he actually has a very keen awareness of what's going on around him Yeah, I much prefer that characterization of him to, say, the way he's presented almost as a buffoon in some ways in The Three Doctors, because he can't accept they're on another planet, and he can't accept that the interior of the TARDIS is bigger. It's like, how long have you worked with the Doctor? (laughs) You should know what these things are like. But yeah. As far as other characters, Sarah Jane Smith, is she finally hatching, as it were, apart from being the literal damsel in distress in this particular story? So let's say that a person didn't notice Harry getting on the TARDIS at the end of the book. I can't imagine such a such a beast, but let's say a person didn't notice that. <laughs> um, I would say that Dick seemed to split his attentions for to guest star three ways between Harry and the robot and Miss Winters, mm. and that Sarah Jane seemed to be defined mostly in similarity to and contrast to Miss Winters, it seemed. Yes, I was hoping you'd get into that, because Hilda Winters is definitely presented as a very strong female character, but a very strong villainess character, and she's very much the mirror image of Sarah in this. 
So I think there's Sarah Jane. I think it's interesting that it's almost two halves. In the first half of the story, Sarah Jane, we get the one version of her. She's this independent journalist. She's clever. She's figuring stuff out. She's showing initiative. You know, she interviews Kettlewell. She goes back to Think Tank. She's following off her journalistic instincts. And she's kind of holding her own against Miss Winters. And in a way, she's the one who's finding things out. And then in the second half of the story, she becomes... Fay Ray, she is the damsel in distress. And it's almost like the two companion archetypes are happening within the same story. Hmm. Yes. And as soon as, basically, as soon as she's at the SRS meeting, then everything's reversed and she goes, she becomes, once she's betrayed by Kettlewell, she just needs to be rescued and is the one who's showing sympathy to the robot and then needs to be rescued several times after that. So I think your observation about her being a mirror to Miss Winters is interesting because as an aside, the same audio production company we were talking about, Big Finish, they did do a Sarah Jane spinoff before the Sarah Jane Adventures. And it's kind of a spoiler, but not a spoiler. But halfway through her first season, the surprise villain is Miss Winters. And they got Patricia Maynard to reprise the role. Oh, wow. And the other one in cahoots is Jellicoe's niece or something like that or daughter or something. Because, you know, I don't think that the actor played was available. And they've set this whole story arc trap. And it's basically that first season is the revenge of Miss Winters. <laughs> cool. And we find out, because that's one of my issues with the story is it's very vague what happens to Miss Winters yes. and Jellicoe mm-hmm. yeah, at is. the end. And so 30 years later, they do this series where they we, we find out and it's it's fun. And I think the big finish have just made them available for download and Ooh. at a very reduced rate, like two ninety nine per story. So if those get of you listening, today. you, <laughs> you know, get yours today, I'll pitch that. Big finish salesperson, because it's a rough time to be going door to door. So right. are you going podcast to podcast? <laughs> they should be paying us. Yeah, exactly. But yeah. Well, <laughs> I thought the stronger Sarah Jane scenes were early on where she had, I thought, a very strong scene of understanding that she's being manipulated, understanding that she is being condescended to in a, a passive aggressive way with first rate plausible deniability. She's being constantly put on the defensive and the back foot. She's smart enough to recognize what's happening she's too inexperienced and naive to know how to stay one step ahead of it. And I thought that was actually a great way to write a companion who is a very bright person, but not very experienced yet. And they see what's happening, but they don't yet have the experience to know what to do about it. Especially the way this first opened where, you know, Sarah Jane, who's been the object of so much casual sexist assumption, benevolent and malevolent. <laughs> she has experienced with benevolent <laughs> sexism and some malevolent sexism as well. Assumes the director is a high-ranking secretary and the PR guy, and he seemed to have a lot of power and evil in him for a PR person. Assumes yeah. that he is a director, and of course, they expect that assumption and use her to put it use it to put her on the defensive the entire time. You have this line, I didn't expect male chauvinism from you, Miss Smith. And she sees within two beats what's going on. And it actually says, you know, she felt the two of them had expected the mistake and were using it to put her in her place. She said sweetly, do forgive me, such a stupid mistake. Not at all, said Miss Winters with equal sweetness. Shall we begin the tour? And 
oftentimes Dix will write feminine wiles, and I think he actually does use the term feminine wiles somewhere in this story. Yeah. He will often have a male writer's misperception that it's some sort of magic bullet that if only he had it in his weapon, he also could shoot feminine wiles at people and have a great advantage in society. <laughs> well, you know, sort of like... Weaponized feminine well, wiles. You know, sort of like white people who think, you know, if only I were a person of color, I could get into Yale. And just who this... <laughs> I just have this sort of fantasy that if only I had this one thing that people from a different demographic or identity have that I don't, then I could just use it with abandon and use it to get ahead. And I think that even though he uses that term feminine wiles here, he does a much better job than usual of portraying it because those same tools are A, not magic bullets, and B, can be used against her as well. Yes. So she tries the sugary sweetness. It's used against her as well. Both of them know what the other one is doing, but what are you going to do? Talk about it aloud? No, that's a way to lose the game. So this is better feminist dicks than usual. Man, I just said an unintentional mouthful there. Well, I just did it again. All right, so quadruple entendre there. Uh, so, <laughs> moving along, I assure you, none of this content is planned, as you can, as you can plainly tell. As usual. That's why it's disappointing that towards the end of the story, we just have Miss Winters and Jellicoe being bonkers, where we showed both of them being very smart, very savvy to begin with. They just, they grow must mustaches for the purposes of twirling them at the end. And mm -hmm. Sarah Jane, who's been shown to be so bright and yet so frustrated, is just singing to the birds like, like the Snow White of Robots or something. I mean, yeah. that I, I feel like all three of those characters are just let go towards the end. And it's really a shame because Dix is putting a lot more work into them in this book than he does on screen. I mean, they're still fairly good on screen, but here they get some fleshing out that they don't get on well, screen. Well, even Jellico has this great line. She trail wearily back towards the main gate. Her guides continue to lecture her on their blandly, in their blandly superior manner. Yes, we do mostly frontiers of science type research here, said Jellico. Not easy for the layman or laywoman to understand. And that's just brilliant as he subtly yeah. deniably but unmistakably says we're not condescending to you because we're sexist we're condescending to you because you're clearly inferior and it's just a masterful mm -hmm. zinger and then at the end he just has his plan for world domination is not good yeah that zinger i do not think is in the scripted version i don't think so either and i think that's actually where a segue for one of my observations reading it this time around is the Scientific Reform Society, I think maybe reading this book in 2020 with oh. incel culture and the alt-right. Yes. <laughs> but, but at the same time, and I felt very conflicted because there's this bit where she's interviewing the chairperson. He says, your, your own clothes are not practical. And he's kind of saying he can think better and he knows better. And she says, shouldn't that be a decision I make? And we can all... I think we would agree, yeah, a woman should be able to wear what she wants to wear. And, but what kind of put me in an odd position is with all the anti-mask debates, in a way oh. that argument is almost the reversed, where the conservatives are saying, shouldn't I decide whether to wear a mask or not? Who are you elites to decide for me? Yeah. And Dick several times has this point where they have this beautiful version of the world, you know, with like 
better fuel and everything. But in order to make it happen, it would have to be a dictatorship. Yes. And you think about what the rights accusations of the left often are. And the, the plot line is very similar to Invasion of the Dinosaurs in that regard. And that's that was a connection that I made, is that you've got this group um, who want to wipe out life on Earth and start it better on more progressive lines, no pollution, more equality, da-da-da-da-da, and thinking scientifically and rationally, and they're the villains. So I think... Well, they want to start it with nuclear winter, which is not good ecological planning. No, no. Miss Winters. You know? <laughs> oh, I didn't even get that. I never caught that. I never thought... But again, if you listen to progressives now, they one of the complaints with the mask debate and the COVID is, listen to the experts, listen to the scientists. And there is an element, even though I find myself agreeing with it, that is, we know better than you. And that's what the anti-maskers are reacting against. The paternalism. And, mm-hmm. Yeah. And so I found the politics in this, because of the storyline and the, the bad guy's motivation, there is a political element to this. And yet the politics seem to be all over the place on it. Yeah. And it's, I, I found myself at times sympathetic because, well, yes, the world should be more rational and more scientific. Gosh, darn it. That's what I've been saying for the past three months here. And then I think, oh, does that make me miss Winters? Oh, no, no. And and I don't know if there's a point there. Obviously, the world was very different in 1975 when this was being written. But I I found myself a little bit discomforted with, with that line of thinking as I was reading it. Yeah, I found, in fact, there was a quotation I took from Chapter 6 where we're in Kettlewell's head for a bit. And he's talking about, he's thinking about all the things that he wants to be different about the world. And Dix writes, he was quite undeterred by the fact that the proposed changes were so enormous that it would take a world dictatorship to put them into effect. Mm-hmm. Which is the and only time in the book I was actually two... angry at a line. Go ahead. Really? Yeah. I found it interesting for two reasons. One, it's our very first bit of foreshadowing that Kettlewell is in on things which is still a problem for me plot-wise, and I hope we can address it. And two, it probably would take such a thing to get the world back in order, wouldn't it? It's a little terrifying in that regard. I think it's completely, insert metaphor or expletive here. Did we get widespread human adoption of electricity through dictatorship, of indoor plumbing through dictatorship, use of the cell phone through dictatorship, that... This idea that environmental reform, and he's specifically talking about implementing like wind and solar technology, would have to be implemented through dictatorship as opposed to people adopting it because it becomes clearly the most efficient choice or the most affordable choice or in some way the most desirable thing to have. Just reminded me of, what's this Shoemaker Batman movie with Poison Ivy in it? Where she has uh, a, Batman she, she presents <laughs> Batman with a dossier. She presents uh, Bruce Wayne with a what looks like a several hundred page dossier that he glances through for about five seconds and then declares that millions of people will die if her plan is implemented. And that is not what what environmental <laughs> reform ever have you ever seen like that? And specifically here, this is before we're told nuclear winter at this point he's just talking about alternative electricity so i just thought it was hysterical like not in 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 the nut sense not the funny sense to launch off those three examples that you gave though allison i would say that the thing that ties them together thematically is they were all things that made life more convenient for people and that's why we adopted them the way we did and they were allowed to saturate the market they weren't 
artificially repressed in the way that, say, Nikola Tesla's form of electricity was, or indeed in our own country, the way solar power and wind yes, power have yes. been repressed by a government that is more engaged well, in fossil fuels. The, the stronger industrial interests that had a strong economic interest in fossil fuels continuing to be the default fuel, even as other fuels become more cost-effective, more renewable, uh, you know, less dependence on purchasing from foreign governments, foreign agencies, etc. So I don't want to get to the entire politics of energy, but this weird characterization of the environmental scientist who's developing more advanced technology who believes that in order to implement it, he'll have to take over the world is not consistent with how we've gotten better technology in the past because even fossil yeah. fuels were cleaner than you know burning a lump of peat <laughs> i'm being a little bit silly here because i know we didn't go straight from burning the lump of peat to fossil fuels but as the technologies become ad more advanced they usually become cleaner we live longer because we're not heating our homes and cooking our food by burning wood and coal and smoke and inhaling all of those things so i'm I hope you, you edit out most of my rant here, but <laughs> I expect more, well, no. but this is science fiction, and I expect more interesting consideration from science fiction than this. Right. Well, Kettlewell himself is kind of written all over the place, too, because I've never been satisfied with that character and his reason for betraying Sarah in the first place and playing along with it and all of that, that always struck me as just kind of like, whoa, wait a minute, that just came out of left well, field. Well, why did he leave Think Tank in the first place if he was in cahoots with them? That's yes. where it doesn't make sense to me. I thought he didn't. I thought he was in Not some at ways. All. He'd always been part of the society and he was off working his own projects. He may have left Think Tank, but that was so he could have the independence to work on this But project. Sarah refers to that it's well documented that he left in a huff. So at some point they yeah. had to stage him leaving in a huff right. and, along ideological lines. And yet they, that doesn't seem necessary because they wouldn't have known that unit and the doctor were going to be investigating this. I mean, that's, it's just. <laughs> yeah, it, it's never, it's never quite gelled for me all that well, especially since he later has a change of heart and that's his death is actually very different on screen. And the version in the book somehow is even more tragic because it involves self-sacrifice and actually completes a character arc that the other people in that organization do not get. It's just kind of an incomplete arc because we don't know why he got there. Yeah, I agree, because place. it would have made more sense had he not understood that the plan was to go into the bunker and nuke the world. If he was just learning that, it yeah. would make sense that he would not like that plan, not agree with it. Yeah. But he seems to have already been in on everything from the beginning. So the fact that he betrays Sarah, but then decides that betraying her is going a little far doesn't have much explanation within the character. Now, I will say this for Dix. There are a couple of major, well, they're not plot holes, but they're just weird decisions that the on-screen version does that he fixes here. One of them is in Chapter 8, when Unit arrives at the meeting and breaks it up. Now, <laughs> on screen, for some reason, the Fourth Doctor pretends to have been shot and falls over a table and allows Sarah to be taken 
and winks at her as she's leaving. And it's never made any sense to me at all because it's just absurd. Whereas here, there's a throng, they're separated, he's injured by the robot when he's trying to rescue her, which is why she's captured. That makes a lot more sense to me. So I have to give him kudos for fixing that that whole scene just doesn't make sense because what i never understood either in the book version or the televised version is he's clearly um crashing the party and instead of like you know eventually you have some people trying to get him off the stage but most of them just start watching the show and are and are really enamored with it and that seems odd to me yes and that doesn't really happen here thank goodness that scene doesn't make much sense on screen here at least it actually does I mean, there's a pretty good sci-fi trope of the brilliant scientist who doesn't know how to function in the world, or a person who has a clear plan for an idealized society but doesn't really understand human nature. Which is why I'm thinking of Ben Shapiro and all the alt-right and the incel culture. Those are not scientists. (laughs) No, they're not scientists, but but they kind of think they are. You know, mm-hmm. they, they have they're not, they're not even good husbands. They think they know better. And they, they kind of have that sort of socially awkward demeanor about them. And one thing that I thought was nice here, going back to the scene you pointed out, Trey, where Sarah's talking to the society secretary and I, I got the impression he was kind of checking her out to see if she'd be a suitable member and then he clearly decides she would not be. But when he says, you know, well, your own attire, for instance, is it really suitable? In a more usual story, she would have been wearing something that is ridiculous, either too revealing or very trendy and impractical, like, you know, very tight girt, stiletto heels, impractical for running around and having adventures. And the nice beat here is it's not even clear what he's talking about that would make sense because it's an arbitrary standard of what the right kind of person yeah. should be doing. Oh, wearing different clothing. What? more practical, more covering. Who knows? Who cares? He just has a very specific idea, but we, the audience, see how arbitrary it is. I think she's wearing in that scene one of those 70s sort of like headscarves that were very popular at the time. But the book were just told modest trouser suit. And oftentimes this would be an opportunity to point out that the companion is being uh, silly or vain or trendy and instead it points out the arbitrariness of the standard of the ideal person that's being imposed on her which might be the point that dix is making yeah i think it was made in the script but the uh <laughs> the people who put liz Slade in that costume obviously thought that some other point was being made okay well that's yeah. interesting if he changed it yeah, well, he didn't. He didn't change it. It's still the exchange is exactly as it is on screen. But I mean, if he changed the implication. Yes, he did. So he has her wearing what we would consider perfectly fine, reasonable clothes on screen. Yeah, it's not so much trendy, but it's definitely something that someone with a stick up his ass would think of as just being un- inappropriate. And I think that may be the point of the whole scene. I do love her her line, though, at the end, whenever she's leaving. Oh, yes, I'm sure we'll find a place for you, somewhere between the flying saucer people and the flat earthers. Goodbye. <laughs> yes. Like, she's clearly not even phased by the bullshit that he's spewing, so. No, no, not in the least. I've noticed something. <laughs> We've been talking all this time about the book, The Giant Robot, and we not even really talked about the robot. 
And I'm wondering if that is a sign of something or whether it's just that there's a lot to talk here about. How did we feel about the robot and its characterization, if you can call it that? I felt the same way as I did about Jellico and Miss Winters, that the first two-thirds of the characterization was terrific, and then it made no sense in the final third. Yeah. And I maybe I'm just starting to like robot stories more in recent years because I used to have a strong antipathy to them. But I really liked the characterization that even it was repeated a lot, but I thought it worked that even when it's committing violence, it's tender because it doesn't actually have hmm. uh, an impulse to violence and that it's yeah. programmed to not be unnecessarily violent. It's contemplative in its way even when it's doing these things that are to it objective. You know, we're told in this opening sequence here, you know, vegetable and organic matter impeding progress, resistance negligible, ignore. So it's not that the robot has inherent compassion. It's just been programmed to be gentle and seems to start to take that to heart. Yes. It lowers its first victim gently to the ground, as I recall. Yes, yes. That's the way Dix describes it. And I like yeah. that Sarah identifies the robot as having emotion, and the robot is essentially offended, <laughs> an emotion, in response to that. And I thought there were some really nice things with the contradictory programming. So at the end, when it's just screaming about you're all bad and you have to die, that was a disappointment. Yeah, that's true. How do you, you other two feel about that? Well, they kind of explained that they basically broke him. And so that's why he's screaming about that. That's why yeah. he's just gone. He's they, they kind of explained it as him going crazy. Basically, he's <laughs> he, uh, Yeah, quite literally. They basically say that they've created a contradiction in his circuits, in his, his processing. So, yeah, of course he's going to be just spewing off craziness. He, he can't really make sense of anything because nothing is logical anymore. True. But he draws a moral conclusion about the worthlessness and evil of humanity that seemed to come out of nowhere in a way that irritated me. And yet the doctor's counterpoint at the very end, that the robot actually is very human because it has that contradictory nature in it. Mm -hmm. That seems to serve as a counterpoint to all of that. I just complained about the irrationality of Winters and Jellicoe's and society's plan at the end. It it does work to have villains who seem very in control, very systematic and cunning in their plans. And then when they have a chance to enact their plans, we find out they're not nearly as smart as they appear to be. Like, they're very good at getting to the point where they're in power, but their plan for what to do when they're in power is completely nonsensical and involves them yelling and sort of having, foaming at the corner of the of the mouth. <laughs> yes, and I thought that worked exactly. for the humans, but I guess somehow it didn't work for me for the robot. Yeah. I also find it interesting that every once in a while, Dix's... I, I hesitate to call it misogyny or even sexism. It's just a very dated way of looking at gender differences. But that coded phrase, wretched woman, that he uses for Miss Winters, you'll notice this going forward, that whenever a female character is bad, she's referred to as a woman. Yes. But whenever a female character is good, she's referred to as a girl. Mm. Mm. I didn't notice that and, one here. Yeah. 
Oh, yeah. The doctor calls Sarah a girl at one point in the story, and the brigadier refers to Miss Winters as a wretched woman. And I've always thought that striking. In fact, it was part of the academic paper I once wrote on this, that that's the way the show at this time seems to see it, which is a little disturbing. Someone calls Miss Winters that woman and then yes. refers to Sarah Jane as young lady. This is the one I know that's a girl. Yes. That woman winters and uh, or sorry, I suppose that woman winters could have commanded my orders. That's exactly it. One of a couple of different times that word order is very interesting. And the other one, it's comedically interesting. And this time it's pretty telling. Not that hmm. winters woman. That woman winters could have countermanded yes, my yes. orders. Yeah, the gender comes first rather than the identity. I remember reading a, a, an essay years ago when someone said that as soon as Bill Clinton declared in that press conference, I did not have sexual relations with that <laughs> woman, Miss Lewinsky, that's when they knew he had. <laughs> because he would not <laughs> have referred to that woman for someone whom he didn't have some kind of emotional history with. Yes. He hadn't had some kind of involvement with of some type of just... An employee, an intern, it w he wouldn't have reacted in the same way. It's like whenever Trump says enough Or he story. always says nasty woman. You know, he doesn't say nasty man. <laughs> you know, even so if it's a female reporter yes. who yes. asks him a pressing question, she's a nasty woman. And if it's a male reporter, you know, he's has other names, but he doesn't use, he doesn't say nasty man. Yeah. He doesn't use the implication mm. of impurity that nasty yes. carries. Yeah, that even comes up in Mary Trump's book, interestingly enough. And the thing that Dix does that, once again, throws me off a lot is I can't tell when he's being sexist and when he is showing a sexist villain to establish the villainy. Because that was Kettlewell. But the Brigadier. referred to that yeah. one Winters. Well. And then, you know, Kettlewell nodded towards Sarah. This well, young lady's story a confirms conservative it. conservative archetype. Yeah, so what do you think of that? traditional. I mean... If we're, if we're bringing in political analogs, I think Terrence Dix is kind of like the Joe Biden of Doctor Who. <laughs> you know, like, probably <laughs> means well. Is oh, man. Overall, <laughs> overall on the good side. Gotta but wear there's a hat. So we get like, his fingers Come out of on, Terrence. Come on, Uncle Terry. You know, like, just, I know what you're kind of doing, but this is still inappropriate. And you're not really quite getting it. And, I mean, I'm kind of being facetious, but I actually... As I think about it, I think that's a, a decent analogy where the right is having a really fun time with Joe Biden right now, like trying to present him as a creeper, as this horrible predator or something, whereas turning a blind eye to Trump. But kind of see where they're coming from. And some of those criticisms are valid. But it's hard to say maybe I am just turning a blind eye. But I, I find myself being more forgiving of Biden for whatever reason because of everything else he's said and done. And I feel the same way with Terrence Dix. Like, I don't like the misogyny. I think it's there. But I don't think, if we're being very literal, like, I don't think it comes from a hatred of women. I do think it comes from, he's still maybe very much a product of his upbringing that men are in this place and women are in this place. And that's where he's struggling with, like, the feminist themes and, and so forth. Right. Well, yeah. and Sarah says, Sarah realized she was right. The brigadier was simply incapable of shooting a woman when Mrs. When Senator says, you know, you're not going to shoot me. Yes. And I thought that was actually a mischaracterization of what we've seen of the brigadier so far. He's been shown to be very strategic and sensible in such a way that he would absolutely shoot a woman, I believe, based on what we've seen yeah, so far. Probably. If he thought it was a strategic thing to do at the time. 
uh, not in a cold-blooded way, but he would shoot a woman in a situation no. in which he would shoot anyone. And in a later story, he, in fact, has that choice but to But then make. I thought it was, once again, this seemed like a villainous characterization, and this took me from the side of saying Dix as being very insightful in making his villain condescending and just thought he was doing it to the Breedier as well, is... Yeah, we're told the brigadier's sense of chivalry finally deserted him. He grabbed Miss Winters by the shoulders and threw her across the room in the arms of Mr. Benton. So he's too courtly to shoot her, but he'll get frustrated and kind of rougher up. Actually had this sort of gross domestic violence overtone. That's not a domestic yes. situation. The idea that I hate to hurt a woman, but you know she forces me to do it. That was... Even though it's a similar scenario to what we saw before, it's sort of the opposite content. Yeah, agreed, agreed. And I'm very glad that the writers who decided to break up the Brigadier's first marriage didn't go down that path, because that would have been really disturbing. Yeah. Well, just kind of on the, the same note that we're on, uh, speaking of the Brigadier, there are a couple of instances where he just kind of writes off that Sarah is even part of what is going on oh yeah you know there's an instance earlier in the book where they're going after the robot and he just kind of okay whatever sarah and then there's another instance later again where sarah has disappeared and he says good grief i've forgotten all about the poor girl mr Bitten, do something mm -hmm. about miss smith would you just yeah she's she's been totally kidnapped disappeared no one knows where she's at, but they're only focused on the robot. Oh, it's so much worse on screen <laughs> because they're still on the bunker on screen yeah. the whole time. And Benton says something along the lines of, oh, we just thought she'd gone home. And even the doctor calls them out on it. gone home. Are you serious? Yeah, it's like, I can understand that to a point, but if she's been part of all of the action up to this point, and she and the robot go missing at the same time. Come on. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I thought there were some nice closing character moments for the Brigadier, um, where you know, the Brigadier fingered his revolver. You know, Doctor, once, just once, it would be nice to meet an alien menace that wasn't immune to bullets. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and then later on, he's a bear saying, yeah, I tried to dispose of it with a disintegrator gun. Doctor, the doctor says, oh, yes. really? Brigadier. <laughs> like, he's embarrassed. He knows it won't work. <laughs> He had to try. <laughs> that's, a, that's another moment where the doctor on the page comes off as a little more angry than he does on screen, because on screen, the Tom Baker delivers that line kind of offhand. I, I, I read it that way, too. I was actually surprised by the reveal when all the villains were parading up on stage together to reveal they're all in on it. I didn't see quite that configuration coming. Kind of like the end of Star Trek VI, but the other way around. I'm trying to remember yeah. the end of Star Trek VI. They all pose for the camera oh, yeah. at the very end when they uh, hate that moment. But yeah, <laughs> anything um, else? There's just the the line the doctor says. They're they're talking about the plan going through and the missiles exploding, blah blah blah. And the doctor says, "If this ferocious little species of yours didn't insist on piling up these terrible weapons, there's kind of that feeling of annoyance with humanity always kind of turning to fighting each other." Is this the fourth novel? to mention the Marie Celeste. It's at least the third, but I think it's the fourth. Yes. <laughs> it is mentioned more oh, often than the world yeah. wars. He's always <laughs> thinking of the Marie Celeste. Seriously, you're not wrong, because watching Doctor Who as a kid, I was fully expecting like Mary Celeste to be like this really important thing that I would learn one day in history class. 
<laughs> like some British equivalent of like the Lincoln and Kennedy assassinations or something where the whole century turns on this event. Yeah. Well, well, it does. Did you, Trey? Did you did you learn about this big event in school? No, no, but I learned about it through Doctor Who several times. And, you know, it's, I mean, Doctor Who... And it was different every time. Well, yeah, I mean, Doctor Who taught me a lot of history. It got me interested in, like, say, the... That was my first exposure to who Robespierre was or mm-hmm. Nero and Rome. I learned it through Doctor Who when they were doing the historicals, the Renaissance, which is coming up in a half a year from now or whatever. But yeah, yeah. I remember thinking the Mary Celeste was a really big deal and everyone must have heard of it because Doctor Who mentioned it all the time. And nope, that's not <laughs> the case. But very much part of the zeitgeist in yeah. 1974, apparently. Who said who wrote and directed District 9. Is it Neil Blomkamp? Yeah, Neil Blomkamp. I remember a film reviewer saying that he clearly had had, when his third or fourth movie came out, he clearly had had some kind of traumatic experience dealing with RoboCop because he keeps remaking (laughs) RoboCop. (laughs) So someone has some kind of traumatic childhood experience having to do with the Mary Celeste. (laughs) They keep trying to communicate this story to us, but we don't quite we haven't quite gotten to the, the core event no. yet, because I don't think anyone who wrote on this show was old enough to have been around for it the first time. Right. Well, it's funny you should mention District 9. A, a South African acquaintance of mine once said, yeah, I didn't watch that movie. I lived through apartheid the first time. I didn't need to see it again. Did they have a RoboCop experience? Well, well, are you kidding? Every, <laughs> every day these days is a RoboCop experience. So there was an interesting rhyme with the robot where we're told one of the, I think three times that we're told about, you know, violence ending with a, a tender or, or considerate motion. It lowers its victim tenderly to the floor. It disliked harming a living creature, but it knew certain things were necessary. And we had the doctor say something almost exactly like this in the last novelization, mm-hmm. even though the novelizations were, I believe, written many years Part. I thought that was interesting because that was the doctor and this is the robot who's going to go, not evil, but crazy. My argument about this novelization and the last we read is that they were probably written within weeks of each other, especially given that the endings of the book mirror each other almost okay. exactly. Okay, so that's kind of interesting. I'll have to check. Yeah, even down to bless my soul, which is your favorite phrase. <laughs> yeah. So, I have mm-hmm. a one more uh, police panda thing to bring up. Okay, uh, actually, <laughs> that went up. over very well <laughs> last time. By the way, <laughs> if if Una intended to investigate us, they could find better agents than a freelance female journalist. Not a female freelance journalist, but a freelance female <laughs> journalist. What do you do for a living? <laughs> I'm a female journalist. Oh, you're on staff as a female journalist. <laughs> no, no, freelance. And then there. Are, there are a lot more OCR errors uh, in this one than we've seen in a long time oh, yeah. uh, from the scan. And one of them actually was a totally different word, but it managed to be in the same tense. It was actually pretty impressive. But there was a nice thing here where Kettlewell shook his head decisively. Impossible robot has been destroyed. And I think it's supposed to be impossible, comma, and then the robot has been destroyed. But impossible... And V and Robot are all capitalized like it's Chance the Rapper. <laughs> Impossible the Robot Impossible. has yes, been destroyed. <laughs> which I can assume is a robot stage name. <laughs> and, 
And now I know what Skittles, that was also in the last book. Now I know what Skittles are and what a horse box is. There was also one double entendre that I just had to slip in here. Oops, sorry, I already did it. It was a line of Sarah's and I can't find it. I'll find it and then I'll deliver it and hopefully it'll be worth the wait. (laughs) So to speak. While while you're looking, uh, just at the end, whenever the doctor is getting ready to go, doctor, you can't just go. Why can't I? It's a free cosmos. <laughs> yes. Oh yeah. And we get our first uh, jelly baby, I believe. Mm-hmm. I finally found it in chapter ten. For for those of us in the double entendre department, Sarah's fingers were almost numb, but she didn't complain. It's coming, she said. I think it's coming. <laughs> Ew, it's <laughs> dirty. <laughs> How could I have missed that? God. I'm sorry. Nasty indeed. Yeah. Such a nasty woman. <laughs> <laughs> Boy howdy. As everybody knows. I thought there was a very nice establishment of this doctor's cleverness right away because he could seem to be kind of head on a cloud joker kind of idiot. <laughs> but we're, we have this really nice sequence of him noticing the flattened flower and then drawing very keen observations and insights from that that was a good establishment that no he is paying attention he's just paying attention in the way that he thinks is important and appropriate and then his discussion of how the only aliens who could do this wouldn't need to do this so i thought that that was a nice balance to him being off in his own little world but no no he's paying attention he's just not thinking about the same kinds of things that the human character yeah and he must have picked up on how sarah was feeling about her treatment from uh, miss winters and jellico because dix recrafts that sequence in such a way that the doctor's getting revenge on her behalf which i think is just lovely where he's just basically dismissing them in the same way that they dismissed her and that's that's Hmm. just a lovely beat all right as we always do let's go to goodreads.com for online reviews of the book written by other readers and follow up with our own ratings by the way if you're listening to this podcast and want to have your review featured when we get to an upcoming book or you simply have a question about it simply read the book write a review or comment in our goodreads group by the deadline so we get a chance to see it before discussing the book ourselves you may just get your review read out loud here the average rating for this book on goodreads out of five stars is 3.66 several people from our goodreads group wrote about this one, so I'm going to be reading pared-down versions of their comments. T.E. Auden gives it two and a half stars and writes, a workmanlike adaption that is a little bit bland, and the title doesn't so much give away the twist, but more falsely advertise exactly how much of the time is going to be spent with a robot of unusual size. (laughs) The battle scene is suitably epic, without the distraction of Action Man, G.I. Joe toys being destroyed. (laughs) Yeah. The Tom Baker narrated audiobook benefits from his enthusiasm, but is distinctly average otherwise. Our Patreon, James Sumnall, gives it also 2.5 stars and says, One saving grace for this story is it's seemingly written with good humor by Uncle Terry. The introduction of Harry Sullivan, although mentioned at the end of Planet of the Spiders, and his rather wonderful two-play with the newly regenerated Doctor doesn't quite come across on the page as well as on screen although he'll be better served in the following stories. There's also a definite softening of the Brigadier's character with his interaction with the new Doctor. The character of Kettlewell seems inconsistent, perhaps I'm asking too much, maybe. The reveal that he is behind the plot is underwhelmed by the character's lack of motive. Yeah, that's what it comes down to. He is rather obviously used by Miss Winter's meh moment false flag ending. Think Tank are defeated by the Doctor, then we have the King Kong giant robot pastiche. P.S. 
the plastic tank never really bothered me. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a toy tank at the end. And finally, our new Patreon, Dave Davis, gives it two stars. And in a review in which he says, I've been a little generous whenever I've remembered to give a score. Doubtless nostalgia covers many flaws. That's largely true of this book, and there are some improvements. The robot in its giant form doesn't have large chunks missing from crappy CSO, for starters. And the toy tank has an extended scene, possibly one that was in the script, truncated on screen to minimize embarrassment. We're spared the spectacle of the rag doll Sarah as well. Yeah. The, the robot has a little toy Sarah doll that he picks up. It's quite amusing. <laughs> the fourth Doctor is easy to mistake for the third, as I think the original script was written before Tom Baker was cast, so the character was written as bland. Spoiler, that'll come up later, to be filled in by the character. And I, I, I just noticed what he was doing there. I can't even explain the pun yet. We'll get to that story and I'll explain it. I can't believe I just saw that. And Dix was probably working from that script. Unfortunately, Terrence Dix has introduced a huge character flaw that undermines all the improvements for me. He has Sarah faint. It's only the one time when Sarah first meets the robot. But once I'd read it, I kept anticipating it happening again which took a little of the shine off the rest of the book. Sarah Jane Smith recently endured having her mind taken over by a giant spider shortly after being wrapped in webs in the spider's larder and didn't have so much as a dizzy spell, scared though she was. If she was prone to having a fit of the vapors, surely a damn big dinosaur would have brought them on more quickly than a robot. I can understand him including sexism books based on earlier stories that he had no part in, and just wanting to reflect the attitudes that were contemporary then, his avowed male chauvinism notwithstanding, but Sarah Jane was introduced during his tenure as script editor, and he knew the character well. And it's his own script. <laughs> That's a very good point, actually. Points very well covered Agreed. there. <laughs> so, let's uh, rate this thing. Dalton out of five stars, what would you give this? I'm going to go right in the middle and say three stars. I enjoyed the characterization of the Doctor. He just jumped right in there and got to the action. The story itself kind of had some holes here or there, but overall uh, it was pretty enjoyable. It had a lot of action going on. None of the characters really felt like they were left with nothing to do. Um, so, yeah, three stars for me. Not horrible, not the best. Okay. Allison? Well, for the first roughly two-thirds of the book, I thought we might be going towards what Harry would have characterized as ruddy, blooming, marvelous. <laughs> I thought it was an <laughs> entertaining PG swearing. And so I was looking forward to this as homework or medicine, and I thought it was a lot more lively and interesting and distinct for uh, in terms of characterization of the new Doctor than I expected. The things I liked, I really liked. The things I didn't, I really didn't. And I felt like towards the end, it seemed like maybe the writers went on strike and they brought in some scabs to finish up the plot. And then the regular writers came back in and filled in the dialogue <laughs> is how it felt. So I actually thought I was on the way to a higher rating and a, and a, a better ending than we actually got. So I ended up at two stars, but that's it was more like, eh, three stars for much of the book, and then one star towards the end. 
Trey? I would say 3.5 stars. It's everything that you would want in a standard novelization. It makes some slight improvements on the television story. It doesn't have any real flaws. Are there a few missed opportunities? Sure. But it's kind of like Dalton was saying, there's nothing that jumps out as me as wrong. But when you compare it to even Terrence Dix's better offers, where he really fleshes out the story, there's not as much of it there. But it's also more in-depth than what he often gives in the Tom Baker airs, especially the later Tom Baker stories. So I'd say 3.5. Okay. And as for me, I'd have to give it a 3. I'll agree with Dalton that it's odd to read this book knowing that it's an early Dick's book the same way that the last book was an early Dick's book because we can already see that slight slide in enthusiasm on his part from fleshing out the characters, giving us tons of backstory, doing some really interesting things with the prose, there's still some interesting things with the prose. There's still some fleshing out. There's correction of plot holes. There's corrections of just absolutely silly moments. And as uh, one of the reviewers said, the fight scene actually is quite epic compared to what it is on screen because it's frankly embarrassing on screen. But... It's not quite as good as the previous ones that he's done in in order have been. Not so much in story order, but in publication order. His earlier books are far and away better than this. Malcolm Hulk is still kind of pushing him to do his best in terms of prose. And by this point, Dix is starting to become a transcriber of script, the biggest criticism about him is that he's a very script-to-page novelizer, and unfortunately we will see that coming more and more during the Tom Baker era. And every once in a while we'll be pleasantly surprised. This one? Eh. Pleasant? Not so much surprising. Alright. Thank you, guys. And thank you, fellow time travelers, for giving us your... Boy, that was high. And thank you, fellow time travelers, for giving us your valuable time. Next time, we discuss Ian Martyr's novelization of The Ark in Space. By the look at the cover, starring Bob Dylan. (laughs) (laughs) It is an odd illustration of him, isn't it? In the meantime, if you've liked what you've heard here, like us on Facebook at Doctor Who Target Book Club Podcast, all one word with no spaces. Also, feel free to follow us on Twitter. We're at DWTargetBC or subscribe to us via the podcast provider of your choice, including Spotify. If all else fails you, and it inevitably will, email me directly at emperordalek at gmail.com with Target Book Club in the subject line so I don't ignore it. Our new theme is mixed by me. So if you like it, let me know. Thank you very much for listening. Stay safe and enjoy your travels. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Bye.